even if you found a cure for a solid tumor, manufacturing that is is nearly impossible. You you need to have build more manufacturing capacity. You need to find more people that can run the manufacturing space. So it's a really difficult challenge that I don't think the the industry truly appreciates the the scale at which you'd have to scale out to be able to treat a broad global population in a, in a large indication. Pharmaceutical Technology presents the Drug Solutions Podcast, where the editors will chat with industry experts from across the pharmaceutical and biopharmaceutical supply chain. Join us as experts share insights into your biggest questions, from the technologies to the strategies to regulations related to the development and manufacture of drug products. This is the Drug Solutions Podcast. Today, we will discuss cell therapy development with Andrew Scharenberg, CEO of Umoja Biopharma, and Ryan Chrisman, co-founder and chief technical officer also of Umoja Biopharma. Specifically, Andy and Ryan share some of the greatest advancements in cell therapy, where there's room for improvement, the biggest trends in cell therapy development, pros and cons of developing cell and gene therapies, and much more. In the discussion, one thing that came up a few times was that one of the challenges is retention within the industry, and specifically talent. And this issue, according to the speakers, has led to the current trend for some biopharma companies to insource development rather than outsource to a CDMO or a contract development and manufacturing organization. We also talked quite a bit about scale up versus scale out and various challenges and opportunities for autologous and allogeneic therapies. And once again, during the episode, I kept bumbling the two, so please be patient with me. But this, I think, is an episode you're not going to want to miss. Our speakers were very smart and had quite a lot to say. But in case you don't know who I am, I am Meg Rivers, Senior Editor for Pharmaceutical Technology. Before we get started, this episode is sponsored by Curia and Samsung Biologics. Curia is a global contract research, development, and manufacturing organization offering products and services across the drug development spectrum to help their partners turn ideas into real-world impact from curiosity to cure. Samsung Biologics is a fully integrated contract development and manufacturing organization offering end-to-end contract development, manufacturing, and laboratory testing services. Now, without further ado, let's move into the interview. Ryan and Andy, thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thanks for having us, Meg. Absolutely. So let's get started with some of the questions on cell therapy development. The first question I have for you guys is, what are the greatest advancements in cell therapy development to date? Maybe I can jump in first. Um, I would point, if I would answer in two ways. First would be pointing to the, the commercial products uh, out there in, in the CAR-T space in particular because of the patient impact they've had. And if you look at it, then man, taking a step back and just looking at how cell therapies developed maybe over the last 20 years, I wouldn't say I would point to one individual um, development. I think it's a series of incremental advancements all piling one, on, one after another until it got to the point where you could really industrialize these things and, and, and make them something that you could deliver to patients. Yeah, I mean, I think about it. It wasn't that long ago when taking somebody's cells out of their body, genetically modifying it and putting it back into to cure cancer was that seemed like sci-fi and and you know that i remember 2013 2014 when i was going to, to juno therapeutics thinking about what what are they doing 
And now to see it going into second line, starting to talk about first line therapy for, for cancer treatment. I mean, that as a, just a, a high level is, is, is a huge advancement for the field. Let's jump to the next question um, that I have for you guys, which is where do you think the cell therapy space still has area for improvements and why? Yeah, maybe I, I can start um, putting my engineer manufacturing hat on. Um, so I think two things that come to mind on that is the first is, um, you know, if we look at oncology specifically on the autologous CAR T space, there's still 60% of the patients that are not being cured and, and are relapsing with these with these therapies. And so I think it highlights that we still have to understand the science and the biology to, to realize why why we can't, uh, you know, cure those, those other 60%. Uh, and, and then the other side is uh, just scalability and being able to get this to a broader patient population and get this into the solid tumor space. It's, it's, it's shown really great efficacy and huge advancements in the hematological side. But as soon as you start thinking about treating solid tumors, one, there hasn't been great efficacy across the industry uh, going after solid tumors. And number two, on the, specifically on the autologous CAR-T side, even if you found a cure for a solid tumor, manufacturing that is is nearly impossible you you need to have build more manufacturing capacity you need to find more people that can run the manufacturing space so it's a really difficult challenge that i don't think the the industry truly appreciates the the scale at which you'd have to scale out to be able to treat a broad global population in a, in a large indication if i can jump in real quickly i'm curious when you're talking about like needing more people and manufacturing space for the scale up what does that specifically look like? Do you just need simply more floor space, more machines, obviously more humans, you know, to operate all those things are necessary, but what is like the, I guess the other side look like? Yeah. So, so if I break it into a, a you know, autologous allogeneic and then, and then what we focused on at, at Emotion in vivo. So if I focus on the autologous side on, I, I think of it more as scaling out than scaling up because it's an individual patient is an individual drug product. And so a, a single patient has a single manufacturing run that then makes a single drug product that goes back to that individual patient. And so when you, if you, if you have, you know, 10 patients, you need to be able to manufacture, you know, 10 different runs at, at a time if you really wanted to have a large scale. Um, and so in that case, it takes more space. It takes more people, it takes more equipment. Um, and, and so it's really, really hard to scale. You get to a certain point where on the autologous side, where you eventually have to build out another manufacturing facility, and then you have to fill that manufacturing facility with operators, quality people, um, you know, scientists. So uh, that, that's the challenge with autologous. I would, I would think of it more of as a scale out than a scale up. And then as you get into the allogeneic side, again, now you're, if, you, if, you're, if you're thinking just from a kind of a healthy donor type uh, situation, you're taking cells, again, from an individual uh, person, tends to be somebody that's, uh, you know, you or me or Andy, um, take our cells, and then we, we can scale that out a little bit in terms of maybe we make enough drug product for 10 or 20 patients. Um, and then there's an IPS area that uh, you can start with a single kind of master cell bank that then you can scale that up to treat hopefully hundreds of patients. Um, from, a, from an in vivo perspective, which is where Emoja went to, um, that is truly a scale up. So if you need to treat more patients, you get a bigger bioreactor um, and you can use the same people. So from a scalability perspective, it's kind of the field is advancing from that autologous one patient, one product to this truly in vivo, let the, let the patient be the, the manufacturing. Um, Andy, I definitely want to pick your brain in just a second um, and feel free to weigh in on the, this additional question, but I'm curious as far as like scale up and needing all these extra equipment, floor space, people, et cetera, 
how can the financial side of that be addressed? Because if you just need more stuff, but you know, it's yeah. like, does the price of the medication increase? Like, how can that be addressed? Yeah. It, I mean, the, 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 the challenge is that the, it tends to, the, the cost tends to weigh into onto the patient's and so, um, you know, really what, what we're here for is to make sure that we can make drugs affordable and accessible to as many patients as possible. That's our true goal in this industry. I think you pointed to it exactly, Meg. When you scale out like that, you don't get economy of scale. Economy of scale comes more with scaling up, larger batches where one quality control assessment can, can be applied, you know, for a drug product that can be given to many, many patients. When you have that one product, one patient, everybody, you have to qualify that product for that patient. And then you got to do it again and again, perfectly finding all those people to repeat that over and over perfectly day after day. It's just expensive. And it's very hard to get an economy of scale out of that. Yeah, it's a great point. I was going to point to one other um, uh, uh, area, which is the, um, the immunologic barriers to, to getting um, cell therapies to hang around. And it's one of the reasons where, where autologous is advantageous, right? It's your cells. So the, those barriers are relatively low. When you move into to more industrialized cell types that you could scale up and, and gain economy of scale, those have to be uniform. But of course, humans aren't uniform. So the, the cells have differences that um, your, the immune systems of the individual patients then detect. And so we don't under, yet understand how to generate a cell type that would be universally engraftable so that any um, human patient would tolerate it. Um, and yet also would be safe so that if something happened, it, it, it transformed, you know, or, or we lost control of it, we would have um, the ability to, to get rid of it. So I think that's a, another key, uh, another key aspect of, of uh, the challenges in the space. Fantastic. You beat me to it. Was there anything else, Andy, that you wanted to add as far as um, areas for improvement in cell therapy? I think that, that those for me are the main two. How do you make them economical and deliver them to as many patients as possible? And then on the, and I think that really is that, you know, that's Ryan's bailiwick, the industrial side of it. And then on the science side of it, it's understanding the, the um, interface between a, a cell product and, and the, the immune function of, of human patients so that you can get that to engraft, hang around in, in a way that um, we, we understand and is safe. Those really, I think, are the signature barriers right now. I guess as a follow-up question to that then, do you either of you see a way to address these kind of concerns, areas for improvement, or is that something that is going to really need to be found over time by the industry? Uh, maybe I'll jump in. So I think you're seeing a lot of groups starting to do that. So um, you're, you hear Sana and, and some of the other groups talking about hypoimmune technology. I think this is a, an area that, that really emerged from academia as a general approach. We know how immune cells recognize um, uh, foreign uh, grafts. So that's come out of a variety of different organ transplant um, uh, efforts you know, over many years, all of that immunology. So we know roughly how that, how that works. And you can go in using gene editing to, um, for example, on some of the, the, the products that are derived from stem cells, you can modify the proteins that are involved in that recognition process and then hope to attenuate the, the, the rejection process. So a lot of groups, so all that's pretty well-defined immunology. Groups are taking a variety of different approaches. And I think over the next two or three years, we'll begin to see how effective and how safe those are. And it's going to be iterative. So there'll be an initial effort. We'll see how that works. And, and it has to be done in the clinic. These aren't things that are very easy to model um, in, in animal systems because in humans, you not only have um, a, ver a very outbred, like we're all very different humans are, but we also have very different 
past experience with different infections and things like that. And, and so we all have extremely different immune systems by the time you start getting out into, into an adult human. So you really have to go into the clinic to understand on, on a, in a very general way how these various approaches to hiding or, or, or gaining tolerance for, um, for cell products is going to work. And it will be coming. It'll just, it's just going to be iterative. Yeah, the, the, the science that is advancing and the rate that it's advancing is incredible right now. I think the companies that are the most flexible and the most adaptable that control their supply chain and their ability to be flexible and adaptable on, on drug products is going, to, is going to be the ones that succeed. Awesome. Thank you so much. My next question for you both is what are some of the biggest trends in cell therapy development? So we talked about a little like areas for improvements and advancements. Do you see any trends? I'm going to say movement away from autologous toward, um, you know, some type of an off the shelf approach drug using having cells available as drug products that can be immediately provided to patients or as an engrafted, you know, replacement tissue. Yeah, I think Andy mentioned a little bit on the on the immunology side, really trying to hide these cells from from the the patient's body attacking them um, so they engraft better and persist longer, I think is an area that there's a lot of focus on. Uh, you're starting to see a lot more focus on how do you how do you solve the solid tumor problem? Why can we not attack solid tumors? So there's a lot of focus on on that area, I think that you're seeing uh, the field advancing into. And then I think the third is really solving that manufacturing challenge, whether that's that's moving away from autologous, figuring out how to make a shorter manufacturing process. Um, there's a lot of focus on, on that area also. So those are probably the three buckets that I would see. I'm going to try and make sure I'm saying all the terms correctly. So it sounds like moving away from autologous and toward allogeneic is a lot because of capacity. There's a greater potential for treating the most quantity of patients. Is that correct? It's more scalable. Autologous, you have to scale out because every patient you need a, to, to generate their own product for. As you move into having an off-the-shelf product, those are ones you can scale up and, and you start to get economy of scale, um, those types of things. Let's move to the next question, which is what are the pros and cons for developing cell versus gene therapies? I feel like CGTs are talked about so much. So just curious to hear your thoughts. I, I can weigh in first on that one. So I see them a little different. So Gene therapy, you can use when you have a, um, a, a patient has a, a genetic difference that leads to a functional deficit in a tissue, but the tissue is still otherwise intact, right? So then you can deliver that gene and replace that function. Um, and and, and cell, cell therapy would be, there are patients where that genetic difference leads to the degeneration of that tissue. There's nothing left, left to fix. Then you've got to come back in with a cell-based a cell based approach to fix it. So I think fundamentally, they're kind of for two different types of applications. There are some overlap applications and, and um, our company, Emotion Biopharma Overlap, is, it works in one of those spaces where you could either deliver a cell or you can actually deliver genes to cells in a tissue to, to actually add new functions functions to those, to those cells in vivo. So it uh, depends a little bit on the application, but fundamentally I see them as, as um, for, for different applications. I probably should have asked this at the beginning of the episode, but uh, Andy, would you mind just clarifying for our audience members who may not be aware, Moja Biopharma, could you explain kind of the areas that you work in as related to cell and gene therapies? Yeah. So we are a, a company that's focused on oncology using essentially the CAR T cell mechanism. So CAR T cells are a way to take a cancer-fighting cell in your body called a T-cell and direct it to directly attack tumors. And so we have two approaches to doing that. One is to deliver the gene that redirects that cancer-fighting cell to kill a tumor, directly deliver that gene to the T-cells in the patient's body. So a way of essentially using the patient's own cells to, to treat the cancer. 
but we also have another way where 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 um, Ryan has teams that are growing large numbers of these cells outside the patient for delivery to the patient. So, and you can imagine the applications would be if a patient has a relatively intact set of their own cancer-fighting cells, then delivering and adding functions to those cells can be very effective. But there are some patients who, after many, many rounds of standard therapy, just have very damaged immune systems. In that case, you're better off generating those cells outside the patient's body and, and delivering a, a sort of a fresh, very effective cancer-fighting cell um, directly to the patient. Let's move to the next question I have for you both, which is what developments have you seen for, we're going to jump back to autologous and allogeneic therapies, um, anything on the horizon for these two? Yeah, I think for, for me, where I'm most excited about is um, the, the applications of CRISPR and, and the ability to genetically modify these cells and knocking stuff in, knocking stuff out. Uh, I, we're just seeing huge advancements there, both for the clinical efficacy and safety, but also from a manufacturability perspective. So huge advancements in that area that I'm, I'm excited to follow and be part of. Yeah, I, I would see exactly the same way. That is, you're, what you're starting to see is people taking um, essentially undifferentiated stem cells, modifying those to allow them for for example, to be hide from the, the host immune system, but also to, to gain additional functions, um, and then being able to differentiate those into, in our, in our field, into cancer-fighting cells that have augmented functions, and being able to generate those at, at very uh, large scale. Sorry, that's my key again. I was just going to say what, what I'm also very excited about in the field is we're going to start seeing a lot of clinical data coming out in the next two to three years. There's a lot of brilliant scientists, brilliant companies that have different hypotheses that they're testing. So we're, 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 the, the field is casting a broad net. Again, the companies that are flexible and adaptable to, to that clinical readouts are the ones that are going to be successful and be able to provide solutions to the, and hope for patients. And so I'm, I'm very excited about the next uh, two or three years um, from, a, from a clinical perspective. Yeah, echoing Ryan, it's, we're just at the cusp of beginning to see the clinical data from essentially all of this, this technology being finally integrated together and, and brought, brought forth in, in, in an industrial way that we can, A, test it in patients, and then actually imagine being able to deliver it at scale to patients. What does the process of cell therapy development look like? Yeah, I mean, for, for me, yeah. I, you know, if we start at the very beginning, it's really, it's, it's based on solving a, a large problem. So for us, we're, we're looking at oncology, solid tumors, and then it's built off of, of brilliant science. You have to have really, really good science and, and integrate the science to be able to, to solve that big problem. So that's kind of really high level. And then, uh, you know, the actual practical of how do you get a drug to, to the clinic, you have to have focus. You have to be able to focus on solving a, a single problem and then, you know, have great people. That's, that's a key is being able to take something from an idea or from an academic uh, lab and turning that into a drug product that, that you know, can go into patients, it does take great people. So you have to be able to recruit and you have to be able to maintain those great people. And so you go through a, a scientific um, proof of concept, and then you have to have folks that are experienced in taking that scientific proof of concept and turning that into something that uh, you can manufacture and, and uh, understand what your drug product is to put it into patients. Massive team of really, really talented people, all of whom are working together with a kind of a singular focused vision. It, that I think Ryan really spoke to it well. You've got to have discovery people. Those discovery people have to be, you know, really incredibly knowledgeable in many aspects of biology. And typically as well, the, um, the, they have to, it's not one thing you're doing with the cell therapy. You're bringing together multiple technologies. So you need people from different fields that can talk to each other, work together, come up with the concept, bring it to fruition, then be able to communicate ahead of time with people who understand 
manufacturing, quality control, et cetera, downstream so that they're not doing something that they're just sort of throwing over a fence, hoping that, that we can manufacture it. There needs to be communication all the way down that the drug development um, timeline. And so just everybody has to be on the same page and really dedicated to moving it forward in a way that is going to make a difference for patients, yet is safe, acknowledges all of the technical and regulatory and, and manufacturing and, and financial risks. You need financial teams also that are able to take that story, articulate it to an investor that are out there and, and be able to get them on board with what that timeline is, what the costs are going to be, and that, that there's a return on investment. So it is just a massive team effort. You know, Moja stands for unity in Swahili and the idea of kind of unifying scientific platforms to solve big problems is one of them, but it's also unifying people with different backgrounds, different skills, uh, different thoughts, bringing those together to solve these big problems too. So, so really that, that combination of brilliant science and brilliant, brilliant and diverse people uh, is, is critical to success. I'm not curious because, you know, you both talked about how important it is to have the right people with the right knowledge. One thing I've heard of from other folks, and I don't know if this is true for your, like to your experience, but they talk about a lot of movement within the industry, a lot of folks kind of moving from one company to another. And if there's really that need for specialized expertise, how can you address that? Is it like a training process when people are onboarded? Like, what does that look like for you? It's a great point. So I think the, the, the bottom line is there's limited people with experience. Absolutely, there's high competition for talented, experienced people. It's just a, the, the way it is, at least right at this stage of the, the company's development. I think you saw the same thing with biologics. First, those people were scarce. As enough different companies were working in the space on enough different projects, you began to get a, a breadth of experience. And, and, um, and so it became a little bit easier to, to build your project teams. But right now, that is one of the challenges to building a cell therapy company. I think the key from my perspective is have great science and then build a culture where people don't want to leave. That, that's really what it comes down to. Um, that's certainly the strategy that, that, um, that we have from the, the standpoint of the leadership at Emotion. Yeah, Andy said it well. Great science recruits people, and then a great culture retains them. And and part of that great culture is is continuing brilliant science, but it's also giving people opportunities to to develop and learn and and um, you know know that they're having an impact. That's that's what we strive for at Emotia. One of the things that we talked a bit about earlier is scale up and scale out. And I had this question for you, and we've covered this quite a lot. So I'm curious if you have any more thoughts. But my question is. What are some of the greatest scale-up challenges for cell therapies? For cell therapies, again, if we talk about autologous, um, the, the uh, Andy Stuckey is. Uh, <laughs> it's uh, um, so so. I, I think for autologous, again, scaling scaling up or or essentially scaling out. The big challenges are having the space to be able to make enough drug product to treat a broad range of patients. Eventually you run out of space. You're limited on the number of patients you can treat per facility. And so then in order to be able to, you know, scale, I guess, scale up, you have to build another manufacturing facility. You spend a hundred million dollars to build this infrastructure to make again, a limited number of patients. Um, and then you have to take that manufacturing facility and you have to fill it with people that know how to actually make this stuff. And so we're not there yet, but I think on the autologous side, we're going to hit a, a time when there's just not enough people that can manufacture to treat, you know, big indications. Yeah, I'd see it the same way. It's going to be, it'll be interesting too. So um, you can imagine when you go with these stem cell drive products to go from a cell that's completely undifferentiated to a differentiated tissue takes a bit of time. And, um, and sometimes that's quite a lot. So that's, that means 
you're occupying, if it's for a patient by patient autologous product, you'd be occupying, you know, a manufacturing room. Some of these differentiation processes can take, you know, multiple tens of days, 10, 20, 30 days. So you'd be occupying like a manufacturing suite for almost a month for some of the differentiation processes, which isn't really workable. So for those, the one by one scale up becomes, I think, um, really, or, or scale out becomes really challenging. And then on the other side, when you begin to scale up and you go to larger bioreactors, the differentiation process for a cell is harder to control in a larger bioreactor. You, ha you have to agitate it. You've got you know, differences in pH and gas exchange and all kinds of things like that that are very different in, in different places in that bioreactor. So scaling up then becomes a, a, has its own sorts of challenges. And I think the industry is starting to gain experience with those, but all of those are also linked to the science. So as the, the developmental biologists get better at shortening that differentiation process or finding ways to really directly differentiate from one cell type to another, then the challenges that the, the manufacturing guys have to deal with from the standpoint of the size of the bioreactor and the uniformity of the culture conditions that they need to enforce, those change a bit. So it's a little bit amorphous. I think it, it just speaks to maybe, maybe the best way to say is the complexity of generating the products is, is, is I think, maybe the major challenge. And as we get better at addressing some of those complexity issues, we'll have a better understanding of, of how to address scale-up issues over time. Thank you both for sharing. Um, that provide a lot of insight. For one of the things that Ryan said specifically was with regards to like facilities and all like the need there. I'm wondering, because I've heard a lot about modular stuff lately. Does that fit into the process of like cell therapy specifically using like more modular stuff to get that in quickly and to get things rolling or not so much? From a modular perspective, you mean how to build a facility quickly? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, the modular uh, model is great. It's definitely scalable. Um, what, what it provides essentially is a controlled environment to make drug product. And, and so instead of needing to build something from scratch, you can drop these modules into a facility and, and go. You still need quality systems. You still need people to run uh, the, the, the equipment. Um, so it, it solves a problem in terms of being able to quickly build out a new facility. And so I think that's, you know, that's where it's really beneficial. Um, it doesn't solve the problem of still needing a building to put it in and still needing people to run it. Yeah. The people aren't modular. <laughs> no. <the> <laughs> no. But I, I think, you know, Andy said it well in, in that we're still understanding the science and the immunology right now. And so again, on the manufacturing side, maintaining the flexibility and the adaptability to be able to uh, pivot when needed um, based on on the science and the clinical readouts is, is important. We're going to get to a stage in, you know, probably five to seven years where there's going to be a really clear understanding of what type of cell we want to make. And that's when engineering can start taking over and solving these big problems. And and the challenge with autologous is no engineering in the world is going to be able to solve the, the the scale out problem that it has. But with the IPS field and with the in vivo field, once we figure out the immunology and the and the clinical needs, engineering will solve these problems. So I, I, there's a lot of hope out there for for the patients in these these large indications. My next question I have for you is: When developing cell therapies, what should companies consider or maybe prioritize when deciding? which outsourcing partners to work with, if at all, and are there any red flags to be aware of? For us, so at Emoja, we ended up internalizing manufacturing because we weren't able to find the experience um, with our specific kind of products. I, I think right now, one of the real challenges is that 
um, the cell, cell therapy products tend to be very unique to each, each organization. There hasn't been, there's not sort of a uniform approach. So experience with um, your product is, is very often lacking. And then what that means is that you have a really difficult time working with partners in terms of um, getting exact timing and the quality that you're looking for in, in, in your product. And so you almost have to internalize, at least that's the decision that we came to. So I think if you're able to find somebody that has experience in your cell therapy product, as, as perhaps the field advances and more people become available, that will be the key thing you'll be looking for is experience with something that is either your product or very, very close to it. Yeah, I think a, a little bit like the antibody world, the, the progression from there was was let's outsource. And then it was like, wait, they, we can't manufacture this. We need to insource it. So there was a lot of insourced manufacturing builds for a decade. And then it went outsourced again. Once once processes got established, once once products got established, then outsourcing made a lot of sense because it was a consistent product. You could train people to do that that process. Right now in the, in the, in the cell and gene therapy space, we're still figuring out what that process is. And it's, it's very hard. Again, I, I keep coming back to flexibility and adaptability. It's very hard to outsource when you need to have that quick, flexible and adaptable turnaround. And so um, that, that, that's a big challenge. The, the red flags that, that I would look for, though, is, again, it's about the people, right? You, you can't train a piece of equipment to, to do this. You have to train the people to run the equipment. And, and the challenge that CDMOs are having right now in outsourcing is, is retention. There's so much cool science. There's so much brilliant products that are coming out. People are being attracted to owning a product. And so CDMOs are having a hard time with retention. And so the challenge with outsourcing is you go and you train a team, you spend all this time training them on your process, getting them to be flexible, adaptable that you need, and then half of them leave to go to a, a, you know, a, the next exciting shiny object. And so um, that's, that's a really hard challenge for the industry right now is, is, is retention uh, in, in the outsourcing model. So it's, I, I think we'll see that again in, in probably five to eight years, you'll start seeing a lot more consistent processes and products and a lot more experience. You'll start to see uh, more outsourcing being uh, a practical approach. Yeah, we've heard from multiple colleagues that the turnover in, in the CDMOs that they're working with is one of the biggest challenges. You will get, you run your process, you get it, finally you run it. And then the next time you run it, it's different people. And, and the, the, the processes are complex enough that that creates real issues. So that's what I would look for is I would, the first question I would ask is what's your turnover? A fair question. Well, I think we have, you know, kind of discussed all these things in depth, and I really appreciate both of your insight. Do either of you have any final thoughts or things that you want to discuss before we finish up for today? What I would say is just uh, expressing my excitement and, and, and passion for the, the real promise of cell therapies. I think, um, you know, the commercial products, the commercial CD19 CAR T cell products and the impact they're having on, on leukemia and lymphoma therapies is, is immense. And um, I think uh, what's really exciting for me is to see over the next decade, some of those same types of advances moving outside of just um, B cell based leukemias, you're seeing that in my multiple myeloma, I think you're going to start to see that extending into certain types of unique solid tumors, and then outside of oncology into into things like uh, eye diseases, retinal, you're starting to see some of the initial products coming out in, in retinal pigment, retinal pigment uh, epithelia as well. So just the excitement for the advancement of the field and the opportunity for patients to um, have tra the transformative impacts, that, that's uh, for me what uh, I hope that uh, the listening audience is, is able to uh, take away from the, from the podcast. Yeah, I couldn't say it any better. I'm, I feel blessed to be, to be uh, building off of the foundational science over the last couple of decades in this field and, and really starting to see it have such a positive impact on patients and providing huge hope. The next 
the next five to 10 years is just going to be incredible in terms of what, what the field's going to do in, in advance. Fantastic. Thank you both so much for your time and sharing your insight. I appreciate it. Great. Thanks, Meg. Like, appreciate the opportunity. Stay tuned for future episodes of the Drug Solutions Podcast with the Pharmaceutical Technology Editors. If you want to stay in touch with the Pharmaceutical Technology team, subscribe to this podcast as well as to our newsletters. When you sign up for our e-newsletters, you will be updated about future episodes of Drug Solutions, receive our magazines, learn about upcoming webinars, and hear about episodes of Drug Digest, which is a video series. Thank you to everyone for joining us for this episode of the Drug Solutions Podcast. We will see you next time.